Hello and welcome to the SureDog Radio Preview for UFC 265, Lewis versus Gone. As usual, I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com. Uh, with me in the co-pilot's chair, rather than your usual co-host, Keith Schillen, is Lev Pizarski of SureDog.com. Uh, Lev is a feature writer and contributor for the site, uh, has been with us since 2020, and uh, I'm very excited to have him here. How are you doing, Lev? Pretty well. I'm very excited to dig into this particular card. Uh, me too. You know, uh, obviously this one's taking place in Houston. Uh, anyone who has watched this show a few times uh, knows that I am a Houston resident. I am covering the event live. Uh, you can tell it is fight week because I've got Captain Credential <laughs> on, on the wrist. Uh, I went to the media day today and, you know, I'll have a few reflections about, uh, you know, different fighters uh, that, that spoke today. Not a whole lot. You know how generic those things are, but, you know, a, a few uh, observations here and there. Uh, in talking about this card, I think it's almost worth it to start by focusing on what we won't be seeing this time. Uh, obviously, this card originally had a women's bantamweight title fight on it in the form of Amanda Nunes versus... Um, uh, Juliana Pena. Julia, I, I kept wanting to say Julia Villas. No, no. And Juliana Pena, that one fell off about a week out from fight night when uh, Nunez and basically her whole family uh, turned out to have COVID. Uh, her her uh, wife, UFC strawweight Nina Nunez, and their and their daughter. Uh, it sounds like they're all well on their way to recovery, including the baby. So that that's wonderful. But ultimately, when that fell off. All of a sudden, the UFC's roundly reviled decision to put a heavyweight interim title fight in this card ended up looking pretty smart because they didn't have to uh, scramble for another title fight uh, to justify this this pay per view. Uh, any, I mean, any thoughts about the? I, I, you know, I haven't sounded you out about this. Like, are are you with me on the interim titles thing, or do you do you not care one way or the other? Do you think it's stupid? Do you think it's great? I think in this case, it's incredibly stupid and it's very insulting. Uh, Francis Ngannou is unquestionably the champion. Uh, whoever wins this uh, will win uh, an excellent heavyweight fight, but they will not be any kind of champion. Uh, in fact, I, I think I might have mentioned this in a column once, but I think this is one of a few times where an interim title actually takes away from a fight because on its own merits this is an excellent fight between Derek Lewis and Cyril Gagne um, but with the interim title it just smacks of of falsehood uh, of illegitimacy because the champion is Francis Ngannou and all this is is an attempt to strong arm him into accepting the UFC's pay terms as well as just putting on a random championship fight on a pay-per-view. But right. neither and, of these guys is the champion. And really, the, the crux of this is that they wanted Ngannou versus Lewis on this card. Mm -hmm. And Ngannou said, I, I'm not going to be ready to, to defend by then. Uh, the problem for me, like as you pointed out, Ngannou is the champion, is that Ngannou is healthy, he is, it's not as though he's been on the shelf for a year. He fought in March. He just right. won the title in March and promptly went to, uh, went back to Africa 
on, you know, doing some uh, humanitarian work. But, you know, he told the UFC, I'm not going to be ready to fight in early August. I'd like to fight in, you know, September, October, something like that. And even that concession, you know, was too much for the UFC. They were like, no, we want Lewis on the Houston card. And so they, they made this fight. In terms of the fight itself, it doesn't bother me too badly because there have been a few examples in Uf UFC history of a an interim champion being promoted to undisputed champ without a unification fight. Uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, uh, Hayden Burrell was uh, pr was promoted to undisputed champ when Dominic Cruz really, really, really couldn't come back and defend. Uh, Robert Whitaker was promoted from interim champ. Uh, when George St. Pierre re-retired. But for the most part, an interim title fight is nothing more than a title eliminator with some gold hardware. It just basically says, okay, you're the interim champ. You're first in line to fight the real champ when he gets back. And that's basically what this fight is. I mean, if they put this fight on a month ago and said, this is the title eliminator, the winner of Lewis versus Gan is the next challenger for Nganu, none of us would have blinked. We would have said that makes sense, right? Yeah, I agree, but uh, I think they should have called it a number one contenders <laughs> match. It would have made it far more palatable for me. Uh, so. And <laughs> and I, I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, you know, it's the UFC's fixation with you know having a title fight on every pay per view if if they can, and you know they are what they are. I can't imagine this this will change. But uh, anyway, long way around to, to saying that. Uh, Nunez versus Pena is not on this card. And for me, that's a bummer. I mean, I I love watching Derek Lewis fight. It's going to be a treat to see him fight in his hometown. But in in my mind, Amanda Nunez is the best fighter on the planet. You know, I, I want to see her fight as many times as I can before she decides to hang it up. So that's a bit of a bummer. The other fight that we won't be seeing is uh, Nico Montano. Uh, she missed weight she missed the bantamweight limit this time by about seven pounds, uh, was scratched from the card and uh, summarily released by, by the UFC. Were you surprised by that news? Not really. Uh, I believe she had about uh, six cancellations and five of those were her fault and three of those had to do with weight cuts. So it it's just very obvious at this point that she is not able to get herself ready for these fights, uh, either in terms of weight or in terms of health. Uh, she's been given numerous opportunities to do so. Uh, usually I take the side of the fighters uh, against the UFC, but in this case, uh, yeah, it made perfect sense to release her. I, I'm, I'm torn as well. I normally... Normally, you know, I'm, I always wonder, you know, could the UFC be providing these fighters more support? You know, could, well, right out the gate, could they be paying them more so that they could all be, uh, afford to be training full time, uh, have the proper nutritional support, uh, you know, have health insurance, things like that. And also, uh, well, I, I feel as though she, you know, she's been mistreated in a promotional sense, you know, in, in more ways than one. But yeah, when you get a fighter that's missed weight multiple times, especially multiple times in multiple weight classes, uh, that I, I can understand the UFC having to let someone go for that. I mean, ultimately their job is to show up on Friday, make the contracted weight, 
show up on Saturday and fight. And I mean, she's failed to do that more than just about any fighter I can think of in UFC history at this point. So uh, I don't know what's next for her. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Combate Global uh, CEO Campbell McLaren was very quick to, to express his disinterest. I don't know if she'll show up in Bellator. I don't know if she'll show up in Bare Knuckle or, or she's just done with fighting. But, uh, you know, uh, farewell, Nico Bontagna. We, we barely knew ye. Uh, I think actually for her most recent fight uh, against Yanan Wu, she actually spent a lot of time at the UFC PI, which has often really helped fighters who have struggled with weight. Mm -hmm. So the fact that she availed herself of that resource and still missed weight by seven pounds, it's, it's a really bad sign. And I think there's almost no chance Bellator picks her up because they have 125 and 145 pound weight divisions, there's no way she's making 125. And I don't know, she'd be like just so undersized at 145 and probably not really worth the money. So, so you're saying that PFL is going to pick her up and stick her at 155 because she's, oh, yeah, she's, she's about the yeah, same 100%. size as Mariana Moraes, you know, who yeah, also used yeah. to fight a flyweight. Hey, that, that's what we're going to get. All right. Uh, if I don't buckle this down, you and I are just going to go off on tangents for, for an hour because that's kind of how we rock. We've got a 13-fight card uh, coming from uh, from the Toyota Center, a uh, five-fight main card with some, that's some pretty interesting you know contender matchups on it. The undercard, as is usually the case these days, a bit of a mixed bag, some legit really interesting prospects, some former prospects with their back against the wall, some people who are just, eh, they're just another fighter and, and they may or may not be in the UFC a, a year from now. Uh, you ready to dig into these? Absolutely. First up on the UFC 265 prelims is a Bantamweight matchup featuring Johnny Munoz and Jamie Simmons, uh, two young prospects who are looking for their first UFC win in their second UFC try. Uh, Munoz, the 28-year-old Californian, is 10-1 and overall. He's 0-1 in the UFC, uh, made his promotional debut last August at UFC Fight Night Brunson versus Shabazian, where he dropped a uh, unanimous decision to uh, Joseph Nathan Manis. He's taking on Simmons, the man who goes by Afro Samurai, is 28 <laughs> years old as well. Uh, he is 7-3 and overall. He's 0-1 in the UFC. Uh, having drawn just about the most brutal assignment possible, stepping up on short notice to fight Giga Chikadze at UFC on ESPN Santos versus Teixeira uh, last November. Uh, he was summarily put away with a uh, head kick and some follow-up punches late in the first round of that affair. Uh, odds on this one do heavily favor Munoz. He's out there around minus 250, where you can get uh, Simmons at plus 210, plus 215 or so. Uh, I will kick this one uh, to you first, Lev. Uh, how do you feel about this fight? Who do you think wins? And bonus question, do you think the winner is like UFC material for real, like and has some staying power, or are both these guys probably not long for the promotion? That's an interesting question. Uh, both uh, fighters, they actually had their first fights at featherweight, and now this one is actually contested at bantamweight. Thank now, you for pointing that out. I, I should have added that to the setup, yes. Now, in the case of Jamie Simmons, that makes perfect sense. He's only five foot six. He has a fairly short reach. And he he definitely looked kind of paunchy 
at uh, 145 against Gigi Chikadze, but that was on short notice, so it's perfectly understandable. I think 135 will probably suit him a lot better, and he won't struggle to make weight. Uh, it's a little less clear in the case of Johnny Munoz because he, I think, is like five foot nine, and he looked very dry and very lean uh, against Nate Maness. Uh, so I think he he might really struggle to make 135. And more than just that, it might really impact his cardio negatively. Because in the Manus fight, his wrestling started out at this level in round one. It went down to this level in round two. And then by round three, it was just a complete non-entity. And even he got taken down. Uh, at the end of a fight. So that that's definitely an interesting wrinkle, how the weight cut will affect him. Uh, in, in general, it, it, it's, it's hard to say how the fight will go because we don't know what Jamie Simmons's defensive wrestling is like. Uh, his striking is, is somewhat basic. He has a nice right cross. He looks to hit again and again. He has some defensive flaws, which were taken advantage of by Giga Chikadze. His offensive wrestling is not that good. Uh, he got like double underhooks against Giga Chikadze, couldn't really convert it. Um, but we don't know what his defensive wrestling is going to be like. And Johnny Munoz, he's he's a guy who's going to try to take you down early and often always looking for the takedown because he does have very nice Brazilian jiu-jitsu from the top. Um, but it's just not clear whether Simmons will be able to defend or not. Uh, Simmons, he, he does have a college wrestling background, but that doesn't always mean that you'll defend takedowns in MMA at any level. Uh, if, if he does keep it standing, it's actually not a guarantee that Simmons wins. Uh, Munoz, he he does actually have like some solid movement in defense, but uh, his hands are very limited. Uh, he fro he mainly throws kicks, but his kicks are rather weak and can definitely be countered. So. I actually think it's a very murky uh, fight. Uh, I would certainly not bet um, Munoz as a minus 250 because while it's possible that, yeah, he gets a takedown early and submits Jamie Simmons, we just don't know enough about Jamie Simmons' defensive grappling at this level. So... Uh, if you put a gun to my head, I probably would choose uh, Johnny Munoz, but I think it's very unclear, and there's a lot of question marks uh, about his victory. Okay. Well, I, I am going to put the uh, at least metaphorical gun to your head. You've got uh, – so it sounds like you're leaning Munoz. Uh, are you seeing decision, submission, uh, uh, KO? Well, definitely not KO. <laughs> Uh, yeah, either he gets uh, he either gets a submission from the top, or maybe he gets enough takedowns if his cardio holds up at this new weight. Which again, is, he looked very lean and dry at 
and 45. So I can't imagine this is going to be an easy weight cut for him. Yeah, I I see a much higher ceiling for uh, for Munoz in the UFC, assuming he figures out a weight class for himself and gets comfortable at it. I do think he has some staying power, whereas I'm not sure of the same about Simmons. Munoz is a guy who actually, you know, pinged my my radar, I, you know, probably two years ago as he was cleaning up in King of the Cage. And I just figured he's a guy we would see on the contender series sooner than later. Instead, he got the call straight up to the UFC. But he's a guy that I'm, I wasn't surprised at all to see uh, in the octagon last year. Whereas Simmons you know, came up on short notice and going back and looking at, at his tape, there's a pretty hard divide. He styled on the really low level guys and on the guys that were kind of contender series or lower level UFC material themselves, he, he struggled. Going on that alone, I am leaning Munoz, just kind of the classic wrestle grappler, you know, that and some aggression and being the physically superior fighter will get you a long ways in this sport. So assuming he's not just a dead man from the weight cut, I, I'm thinking this might not even make it to the point of the fight where cardio becomes an issue. So I'm going to go with Munoz and I'm going to go with Munoz by uh, a submission, probably within the first half of the fight, you know, either first round or early second. Just to split the difference, I'm going to say uh, first round. Johnny Munoz by first round submission. We head down to the flyweight division next for a matchup between Victoria Leonardo and Melissa Gatto. Leonardo, the 31-year-old uh, from Shreveport, Louisiana, is 8-3 overall. She is 0-1 since joining the UFC out of uh, last year's Dana White's Contender Series made her debut against the also debuting Manon Fioro and got head kicked in the second round of that fight. Uh, that was just back in January. Uh, she is taking on Gato. The 25-year-old Brazilian is stepping back into the cage for the first time in nearly three years, uh, despite being just 25 years of age. Uh, she is a uh, somewhat tarnished but perfect 6-0-2 uh, overall. Uh, and again, has not fought since uh, September of 2018, though, for what it's worth, that win was over uh, UFC bantamweight Carol Hosa. So make of that what you will. Uh, she submitted during the first round of that fight. Uh, odds on this one, they're pretty much a pick 'em. Both women are out there around minus 105, minus 110. Uh, I'm just going to say, I have no idea how to like how to prognosticate the fight of a 25 year old woman who hasn't fought since she was 22. Uh, early, you know, early in a fighter's career, obviously they can make such incremental or such exponential improvements just between fights when it's like six months, like let alone when it's, when it's three years. And uh, it's hard to tell whether the, that time off has been uh, her just languishing or her really, uh, you know, sharpening up her game. Whereas with Leonardo, I, she is a bit more of a known quantity to me. Uh, you know, in her in her fights, uh, you know, coming up towards the UFC, and she has some good wins. Like, you know, Chelsea Hack, uh, Hackett, uh, Stephanie Geltmacher are, are good wins. Her losses to Mano and Fioro, Aaron Blanchfield, and, you know, all the way back very early in both women's careers, Miranda Maverick, uh, are basically her getting bullied by physically stronger women. It, it, that seems to be kind of her poison, her, her game. Uh, really does run on being the the stronger woman in the cage. She thrives when that is the case. She struggles when it is not. Uh, 
again, I, I may feel really, really silly about this one about 90 seconds into the fight when it turns out that, uh, you know, Melissa Gatto has turned into a Super Saiyan in, in, in her three years off. But I'll believe that when I see it. And until I see it, I'm, I am going to go with the more known quantity because I have no reason to believe that Gatto is going to come out there and just be a, a physical specimen like Manon Fioro was and just so much bigger and stronger and quicker. Uh, I expect uh, Victoria Leonardo to probably just grind out a decision in this one. So give me a very tentative uh, Leonardo by decision, but I think we'll probably learn a lot about both women. Yeah, so uh, you hit the nail right on the head. In fact, there's a very good example of a Brazilian woman who had her last fight at 22 and debuted in the UFC at 25 and was turned out to be a really excellent fighter, and that is Amanda Hibas. Amanda Hibas also exact same ages, hadn't fought in three years, was uh, was an underdog against Emily Whitmire. And not only was she an underdog, but people were oh. really betting Emily Whitmire, right? And if you just go off of uh, Amanda Hibas's fights oh, back in Brazil, including she had like a KO loss to Pollyanna Viana and everything, it made some sense. But what happened? Well, Amanda Hibas had just improved tremendously right she absolutely dominated uh emily whitmire grappling uh, uh one by a rear naked choke and then and she just showed herself to be a really high level talented fighter just dominating a slew of women until finally uh in a fight she was also dominating uh marina rodriguez knocked her out but that's definitely a possibility for Melissa Gatto because I watched her last fight against Carol Hosa. And okay, she obviously is, was lacking in many departments, right? Uh, her her stand-up is, is very weak. Her, her defense isn't there. Her takedown defense is, is very poor. But these are all things that can be improved massively in the three years. Uh, but one thing she did have against Carol Hosa is she had a she had a pretty good submission game off her back. She was just um, not only was she throwing up individual tra- uh, submissions, but she was transitioning very well from one to another, and she did that to where uh, Carol Hosa couldn't really keep up, and eventually she got her kind of an unusual sub. I don't think it would work against Carol Hosa now, but she got her uh, Kimura from her back after attacking a lot with arm bars and triangles. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, Victoria Leonardo uh, is is just not uh, is just not a good fighter. there's there's no nice way to say it. Uh, she's slow. Um, her striking is is quite poor. Um, her defense is is very poor. Uh, she has just enough wrestling where against Chelsea Hackett, who is this like 21 or 22, I think 21 year old Australian striker, right? She was able to take her down and beat her there, right? Just enough wrestling to do that. 
Uh, I don't know that it's going to work against almost anyone else because I thought Manon Ferro had like a big weakness in terms of her takedown defense. She was also like the striker, right, who had never really fought grapplers, had been taken down. And even Manon Ferro had no problems staying upright against her. Uh, I also don't even think Victoria Leonardo likes being hit. I feel like she kind of gave up against Manon Firo, frankly. Like, she just didn't want any more of that, and uh, that's that's really not a good quality. So, yeah, I mean, we know so little about Melissa Gatto, but uh, I, I'm just so unimpressed with Victoria Leonardo that I'm going to take a chance on her improvement over those three years. I'm going to say uh, I'm going to say Melissa Gatto by submission. Let's go with that. All righty, we have some dissension early on this card, so buckle up, folks. It's going to be a wild ride. I don't know that for a fact. The UFC 265 prelims power on, and we are back up in the bantamweight division as it is Miles Johns meeting Anderson Dos Santos. Uh, John's the 27-year-old LFA uh, veteran is 11 and one overall. He is two and one since joining the UFC out of uh, Dana White's Contender Series season three. He fought most recently on the UFC's Halloween Fight Night card last year, where he knocked out Kevin Natividad in the third round. He's taking on Dos Santos. The 36-year-old Brazilian is 21 and eight overall. He is uh, one and two in the UFC. He fought most recently uh, last November at UFC on ESPN Smith versus Clark, where he choked out Martin Day uh, with a guillotine late in the first round. That was his first UFC win after going 0-2 in his first two against Nad Naramani and Andre Ewell. Uh, odds on this one, Johns is a comfortable favorite. He is minus 210. You can get Dos Santos around uh, plus 175 as the underdog. Uh, Keith. I can't believe I just said Keith. That that's that is that is how reflexive uh, this is for me. Lev, <laughs> uh, who do you have in this one, and uh, how do you see it playing out? Well, I think you have to go with Miles Johns. I think this is specifically a fight to for him to win, uh, and he is a he is a good fighter who's showing like solid improvement. His striking was a lot better his last time out. Uh, in fact, I'd say his striking is already very decent. Uh, and, of course, he's a, he's a very good wrestler who just takes guys down and has a significant ground and pound and is able to do that for quite a long period in a fight. Um, his opponent, Anderson Dos Santos, uh, also relies on his own grappling, but I just don't see him having much success against a guy who wrestles as well as Miles John and who who has also uh, shown that he himself has very good Brazilian jiu-jitsu, very good submission defense. So I don't really see any area where Anderson Dos Santos can trouble him, certainly not on the feet. Uh, I, again, I think... Uh, Good wrestling and good Brazilian jiu-jitsu beat out okay wrestling and even very good Brazilian jiu-jitsu. 
So, and even in terms of cardio, Miles John, he's he's very he's very solid in that regard. Anderson Dos Santos is 36. So, yeah, I'm not really seeing uh, a real coherent path to victory for the Brazilian. I'm just going to predict Miles John wins by decision because I think Anderson Dos Santos is a is a tough guy. I'm I'm with you on a lot of those observations. You know, the, the way their respective skills match up, you broke you broke them down very well and it leads to very limited paths to victory for Dos Santos. When you see a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guy versus someone who presents initially as a wrestler, especially someone like Dos Santos who has quite a few guillotine finishes, you're like, well, you know, maybe you could hurt him on on the feet, get him to take a bad shot and just grab his neck. But that's really not been a problem for Johns. Really, his best path to victory might be to get taken down and, like, initiate a scramble. He does have nice slick back takes on the ground. Uh, that's where a lot of his rear naked chokes have come from. But I'm not going to bet on that to happen. You know, the the more likely thing is that Johns gets the best of it on the feet and it only even goes to the ground if he wants it to go there. Uh, you know, either just as a safety valve, if he's getting something he doesn't like on the feet, or just to, you know, take some time off and uh, and seal rounds. But... Yeah, I, I have uh, Johns by a pretty one-sided decision here. I would probably expect him to win all three rounds, but I'm with you in that uh, Dos Santos has been a tough guy, uh, you know, and he's not horrible anywhere. Uh, and, well, I can't say this about Johns now that he completely iced Kevin the Tibby Dodd, but before that fight, I didn't think of him as like a one-shot, like kill shot guy. I mean, you know, maybe maybe that's the next wrinkle he brings out. But yeah, I'm with you. Uh Miles Johns by a pretty straightforward, probably pretty one-sided decision. We bounce from Bantamweight right back down to flyweight once again, as it is former Ryzen champ Manel Kopp versus Ode Osborne. Kopp, the 27-year-old Angolan by way of Thailand, is 15-6 and six overall. He is 0-2 in the UFC, having been turned aside in his first two octagon appearances after signing uh with the ufc and taking all of 2020 off uh he debuted against alessandra pantoja in february dropping a unanimous decision uh came back on just six weeks turnaround and dropped a split decision to matthias nicolau and that was at ufc fight night edwards versus muhammad so the star uh from Ryzen, who goes by Starboy, has his back against the wall just a bit here. He's going to seek to right the ship against the Jamaican sensation. Osborne, the 29-year-old fighting out of Wisconsin, is 9-3 and three with one no contest overall. He is 1-1 one and one since joining the UFC out of Season 3 of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, most recently, he appeared at uh, UFC Fight Night Overeem versus Volkov back in February, where he knocked out Jerome Rivera in just 26 seconds. Uh, that allowed him to bounce back from his unsuccessful UFC debut in which uh, he was guillotined by Brian Kelleher in just half a round back at UFC 246 last January. Odds on this one, uh, do favor Cop to get his first UFC win. He's out there at minus 185 or so, where you can get uh, Osborne at plus 155 or 160 or so on the comeback. Uh, Lev, uh, sound like... From our conversation between segments here, it sounds like you are leaning towards uh, Cop to, to get it done here and, and for third time to be the charm. Am I right? 
Yeah, yeah, well, a lot of people did think Kopp uh, deserved the decision in his second fight against Mateus Nicolou. In fact, I, I even want to say that the majority of people on MMA decisions, both media and fans, uh, thought he won the fight. It was very close. Uh, but the crazy thing for me is that Ode Osborne, he had his previous fights at featherweight 145 and he's going down all the way to flyweight 125 which is i i actually had to check that to make sure that was right i was like well maybe this is wrong but no he's actually going down two weight classes from his last time out which just is mind-boggling to me it's obviously his chin is going to take a huge hit which is a big deal in this matchup because Cop hits extremely hard for a flyweight. He ha- he has tremendous power at that weight class, and also one of the biggest problems when you drop weight classes is that the guys are a lot quicker. And uh, Osborne, he was he was fast enough at 145. I wouldn't say he was tremendously fast. But the guys at 125 are just so much faster than 145. Even going from 145 to 135, there's a big speed disparity. And it's it's really big in this case. Um, not to mention, uh, as a lot of people have noted, the 125 guys, they're just so technical. Uh, their technique, their their skill level is really, really high. Um, probably even higher than, well, certainly the level of 145 that Odie Osborne was at. So I, I'm. it's a very strange decision, and I think it's a very bad decision against Cop, who, again, hits so hard, and he's not really known for his speed, but compared to what Osborne is used to, he might as well be uh, the fastest guy in MMA. So, yeah, I, I think Cop gets it done with a knockout, uh, probably even in the first round. Outstanding. Thank you. Uh, I'm with you. And uh, disclaimer right off the bat, I still believe in Manel Cop. <laughs> you know, I was very high on him coming over from Ryzen. I, you know, I thought it was a fantastic get for the UFC uh, because even among people who were over there in Ryzen and doing well, he struck me as a guy who was young and whose physical tools and skill set would probably serve him well in, in a Western promotion. So I was pleasantly surprised when the UFC signed him. I was bummed when he ended up spending an entire year on the shelf, but not surprising considering that while he, you know, is Angolan born, he's been fighting out of Thailand for, uh, you know, several years. And that's, one of the countries that was hit hardest by COVID. So I'm not surprising, but, you know, in his UFC debut, he just really ha- had kind of a deer in the headlights performance against uh, Alessandro Pantoja, just didn't pull the trigger. Uh, I was with you. I I picked him to beat Matthias Nicolau, and I thought he beat Matthias Nicolau. So, you know, when he didn't get the decision, that was a bummer. This is an interesting I mean, this is an interesting third chance here. The, the the UFC is not doing their usual kind of like spiteful grind them into the dirt thing they do with uh, uh, 
champs coming over from other promotions. They seem to be giving him every chance to kind of work out the rust, work out the jitters, and and see where he really falls in this division. And Osborne is an interesting test, but definitely a winnable one. As far as the actual X's and O's, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I Assuming Osborne even makes weight, and I haven't seen him around this week, so I, I don't know what he looks like. Sometimes you see a fighter walking around, you're like, oh, like he looks like <laughs> death warmed over. Well, you can tell. Like, you can tell. A lot of times you can tell by the by the media day and the press conferences because mm. the ones who were in like pretty jovial spirits, they're either right on weight and they're feeling great, or they know they're going to miss by a mile and they're just living it up. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I had that feeling about uh, Lando Venata at 262. I was like, because, you know, Venata was dropping to 145 after being at 155 for a while. And he was just in such good spirits and just looked so great physically. I was like, oh, he's going to make it and he's going to fight great. And yeah, he, he, he both things happened. But uh, yeah, I, I, again, I'm, I'm with you. I think uh, Cop is going to be really fast. I think he's going to take advantage of some of uh, Osborne's defensive lapses. He's going to catch that chin. It is a chin that does not have the padding of that extra 20 pounds of water around the brain. And yeah, I think Cop's going to get a you know performance of the night type knockout. And I'm, again, with you, I think it's probably going to be in the first round. Next up, it is a strawweight matchup. And of the strawweight matchups on this card, this is the one that I would have guessed the two women had run into each other sometime five or six years ago, but this isn't the one. Somehow, Karolina Kovalkiewicz and Jessica Penne never ran into one another back in 2016, 2017, when both were, were contenders. They are meeting now. Uh, Penne coming back from a long layoff, and Kovalkiewicz just one fight into the return from her own very long layoff. Uh, Kovalkiewicz, the 35-year-old from Poland, is 12-6 and six overall. She is five and six in the UFC, and uh, she is currently mired in a four-fight losing streak that stretches all the way back to 2018. Again, uh, you know, because of some time off, uh, she fought most recently in February of last year, dropping a unanimous decision to Xiao Nanyan. Uh, prior to that, she lost to Alexa Grasso. Uh, before that, Michelle Waterson, and before that. Uh, suffered one of the nastiest knockouts in the history of the division at the hands of Jessica Andrade. Uh, and that's all the way back at UFC 228 in September of 2018. Uh, she's taking on uh, Penne, the 38-year-old uh, out of Alliance MMA is 13 and five overall. She is two and three in the UFC. Uh, she fought most recently Back in April at UFC on ESPN, Whitaker versus Gaslam, taking a unit or sorry, a split decision over Lupita Godinez. That snapped a three fight losing streak for her. But more importantly, that was her first fight back in almost exactly four years. She had walked away from the sport in 2017, decided to come back uh, this year and, you know, got off uh, on the right foot. Nonetheless, she is the slight underdog here. Uh, Kovalkiewicz out there around minus 120 or so. Penny available still at even money or around plus 105. Uh, Lev, I will definitely kick this one uh, to you first. Who do you see winning this fight? How? And does the winner, at least, like, uh, is the winner a factor in the strawweight division? Or has this division moved on past these two former title challengers? 
Oh, it's definitely moved past both of them. Uh, in fact, I thought Jessica Penne should have lost that fight to Lupita Godinez. Uh, the judges disagreed. And by the way, props to her because I think she was a huge underdog. So people didn't expect her to give any trouble to this uh, UFC newcomer. But it, it was a very close fight, uh, one I thought she lost. Uh, Karolina Kovalkiewicz. Yeah, she um, her performance against uh, Yan Xiaonan, it actually kind of reminded me of some of uh, Diego Sanchez's recent outings where you see a guy or, or a girl in this case who used to be used to be so much better. I mean, Karolina Kovalkiewicz in I think it was late 2016, she beat the uh, the champion. <laughs> at 115 and yeah it, she just looked like a different fighter in her last outing she just was so slow uh just her physical strength wasn't there uh she looks like she probably lost some muscle mass um i i hate to pin it on this but she did go to a vegan diet uh <laughs> before the Yan Xiaonan fight, so who knows, maybe that had something to do with it, but whatever the result, she just didn't look like she even belonged in the same cage as Yan Xiaonan. Yan Xiaonan, who is not known for her grappling by any means, she's a striker, she nevertheless, like, threw Karolina Kovalkiewicz around like a ragdoll at times, which reminded me when um, Diego Sanchez fought uh, Michelle Pejea, and Michelle Pejea also like threw him around like a ragdoll. Uh, yeah, Karolina Kovalkiewicz, even on a physical level, just seems totally out of it. Um, at the same time, if there was one fighter that she could beat, it might be Jessica Penne, who... Uh, is really doesn't have much in the way of, of striking, especially nowadays. Uh, basically, like, relied on grappling to beat Lupita Godinez. So, yeah, it, it's it's a tough fight. It really depends on if Karolina Kovalkiewicz can recapture any degree of a form she used to have. Uh, if she can, then... Maybe maybe she'll win a more clear decision. If she's degraded even further, then who knows? She might even be submitted. But, yeah, I don't see Penna's grappling as being all that threatening. I, I think she's even against this version of Karolina Kovalkiewicz, who is just slow and uh, noticeably weaker. Even there, I think she's going to have a severe disadvantage in the striking and she's 38 years old herself right mm -hmm. so if you really force me to i'll say karolina kovalkiewicz um wins the decision here and hopefully if her heart is not in fighting which it doesn't look like it it has been for quite a while hopefully she retires because i know she got really badly hurt in the Yan Shonan fight, and no one wants to see uh, fighters get hurt unnecessarily. Uh, I'm picking up a lot of the same dynamic you are from this fight. It, it was 
very surprising how uh, physically uh, just kind of shopworn and degraded Kovalkiewicz uh, looked in her last fight. She's somebody who, on her way up in the strawweight division, the, her calling card, or at least the, the narrative that the UFC hung on her as she made her way to a title fight against Ioana Janjacek, was that, yeah, Ioana Janjacek lands, you know, 10.5, uh, strikes per minute, it's incredible. But Carolina Kovalkiewicz lands like 12 strikes per minute. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, you know, and it just felt like the the UFC reaching for uh, an angle from which they could uh, present it as a competitive fight. Kind of like when they sold Alexander Gustafson because he was taller than John Jones. It was the only thing they could come up with. Uh, and of course, Young uh, Tech put her through the wood chipper. Uh, <clears throat> you know, and it turned out that Kovalkiewicz's her real strength, pun intended, fully was her strength. It wasn't that you know she was this ultra high output kickboxer. It was because you know, she was physically strong and she was uh, capable of saucing some women around. And that dynamic was absolutely flipped on its head against uh, against Yan Shanan. Uh, I this I think this is going to be an ugly fight. Uh, you know, Penny like certainly is far removed from her best version of herself uh, as well, but. The things that she was good at, just kind of closing the distance against a niftier striker, as long as it's not Jan Jacek, who like obviously like busted her up badly, uh, and getting to the clinch and kind of making the clinch a safe space for herself, either to land short shots and just kind of run out the clock or or even get takedowns and work her submission game. I think those are things she can still do to Karolina Kovalkiewicz. Unless Kovalkiewicz comes back and she just looks transformed, you know, maybe she started eating steak again or maybe just, you know, changed her, <laughs> her workout plan or, or whatever it is. And unless she looks markedly different, I am leaning towards the 2021 version of Jessica Penne over the 2021 version of Kovalkiewicz. Like you, I'm a little ambivalent about it. It's not a strong pick, but uh, I'll, I'll, I will go in the other direction here and I'll say, give me Jessica Penne via decision uh, for the very, very slight upsets. And this will, if there's any opposite of the fight of the night, this will probably be it. I, I would, I'll say this. This uh -huh. is the fight that I am most confident there will not be a finish. Uh, I will say in uh, Kovalkiewicz's defense, right, that she's she's not bad in the clinch. In fact, that's exactly how she beat uh, Rose Namajunas. She does have, like, some solid clinch striking. She even got... Uh, I believe a takedown from the clinch. Uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, versus Fugros. So uh, I don't think that's necessarily an area of advantage for Jessica Penny, unless Kovalkiewicz has degraded even further. Well, which is but possible. see, I I agree with you. Like if they, I think if these two had fought in like 2016, Kovalkiewicz would have mauled her. I, I'm just I'm wondering whether she'd still be able to do that in her present physical condition against Jessica Penne, someone who's kind of been on the slope down in her 30s, right. whereas Kovalkiewicz kind of went over a cliff. But no, I, I agree. Like, the clinch would not have been a safe place for Jessica Penne if they'd fought in their primes. But but here, I'm I'm kind of thinking it might be. I'm, yeah. I'm open to being it's shown. Possible. Yeah, Sh show me I'm wrong, Carolina. Come on. <laughs> Anything else on this one? No, yeah, it, it's really unclear as well. It really depends on what uh, Karolina Kovalkiewicz has left. We finally head out of the lighter weight classes and all the way up to light heavyweights on the UFC 265 prelims, as it is Alonzo Menafield taking on Ed Herman. Menafield, 
The 33-year-old fighting out of Dallas, Texas, is 10-2 and two overall. He is 3-2 uh, and two in the UFC since joining out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series. He fought most recently in March, uh, getting a first-round, not-quite-Von Flu choke, uh, kind of a shoulder pressure choke over short-notice debutante Fabio Charant. That was back at UFC 260. That snapped a two-fight losing streak that uh, represent the only two losses of his career as he dropped a unanimous decision to Devin Clark last June and was knocked out late in the second round by Ovin St. Prue at UFC Fight Night Overeem versus Sakai last September. Uh, he's taking on Herman, who, with the release of Diego Sanchez from UFC roster early, uh, earlier this year, is now the veteran of the earliest season of The Ultimate Fighter, to still be in the UFC. The tough three stalwart, yes, we're talking about 2005 or six folks, is uh, two months shy of his 41st birthday. He is 26 and 14 with one no contest overall. He's 13 and 10 with one no contest in the UFC. Uh, he is on a unlikely three fight winning streak nonetheless. Uh, stretching all the way back to 2019. Uh, most recently, he tapped out Mike Rodriguez uh, last September with a third-round Kimura in a fight fraught with controversy as there were uh, ghost fouls, a serious botch by the referee. But nonetheless, he hung on to, to win the fight, uh, stretching uh, that streak to three. Prior to that, he beat Kata Sabragimov uh, at UFC Fight Night, Magomed Sharipov versus Cater back in November of 2019. And before that, he knocked out uh, Patrick Cummins uh, back in May of 2019 at UFC Fight Night, Dos Anjos versus Lee. Uh, despite that three-fight winning streak, Herman is quite the underdog here. Menafield is out there at minus 240. You can get Herman at plus 200 uh, as the underdog. Uh, Lev, is that, uh, is that a righteous line? Is there any value there on either side? And uh, who have you got winning this one and how? There might be some value on Menafield at minus 240. Uh, I mean, give all the credit in the world to Ed Herman. He, as you say, a very unlikely free fight winning streak, even if it really should have been a KO loss uh, against uh, Mike Rodriguez, if not for Chris Tayoni totally ruining that fight. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, he he's, he's very, very slow, uh, Ed Herman. He, pound for pound, might be the slowest guy in the entire UFC right now. Um, he, you can just let me, see. Let, me, let me stop you for just a moment. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna interject like I'm gonna call an audible here because okay, as mm -hmm. you point out, Ed Herman, uh, even during his athletic prime, like even 10 years ago, was one of the slowest pound for pound fighters in the yeah. UFC. He is now pushing his 41st birthday. Is this the starkest difference in just pure raw athleticism between two people in a UFC fight ever? You've got oh, a guy I'm who looks sure like an NFL can. strong safety against Ed Herman. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, physically, I think actually uh, Ed Herman has always been a strong guy and he's physically strong even now. Um, uh, it's hard to say. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure we can come up with other uh, examples from the years, right? <laughs> well, every Roxanne Modafferi fight, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
No, yeah. Right, that that was what I was thinking yeah. of, too. Uh, and, of course, Herman has spent the bulk of his UFC career at 185 is another uh, is another factor. But, uh, yeah, sorry for, sorry for the interruption. Please, please go ahead. Yeah, and he's managed to win these fights because he, uh, in a lot of cases, he's able to take advantage of guys who don't have very good cardio. That was the case with Mike Rodriguez. It was certainly the case with Hadis Ibrahimov. And he still throws very powerful strikes in the clinch. Um, however, uh, he's just slow. He takes shots. And um, against Menefield, I don't really think he can exploit Menefield's disadvantage, uh, weaknesses, I should say. Uh, yeah, Menefield also has some cardio problems. He... Uh, his fight IQ is is definitely questionable. A lot of times he'll hurt guys striking and then he'll just clinch with them for long periods of time. So I can see why some people might choose Herman. But in this particular case, uh, I think Menefield, he's he's very hard to take down, actually. His, his takedown defense is pretty solid. Uh, he does manage to defend himself well enough in a clinch. And beyond that, I just don't see Ed Herman eating his blows. Yeah, he was able to maybe like eat some blows from Hadis Ibrahimov and he, he should have lost by knockout to Mike Rodriguez, but Menefield hits very, very hard in round one. He's very dangerous in round one. And I just don't even see Ed Herman surviving that, uh, especially because uh, Menefield does have good takedown defense and is also pretty dangerous if you get him on top, which is uh, which are not qualities that Mike Rodriguez had either. So, I mean, yeah, you can think of some scenario where Ed Herman manages to really take the fight late and Menefield just his cardio completely gives out. But I, I, I think 80 to 90% of the time, it's just Menefield knockout victory in round one. That's uh, perfect. Uh, pulling the curtain back a little bit for viewers, especially those who uh, aren't as familiar with, with Lev, uh, you know, Lev on top of, you know, being an analyst, you know, one of our play-by-play -play guys and op-ed writer, uh, he, he is a, a bit of a mixed martial arts investor, you know, and so <laughs> he has a, a much better uh, eye for, for odds th than I do, like, you know, but I, I will say this, if this thing goes past two minutes, I start feeling better and better about Ed Herman. When someone is at, at least like an over two to one favorite, if I'm looking for value, I'm looking at the underdog and I'm saying, okay, what are his plausible avenues to victory and how plausible are they really? And yes, Ed Herman probably should have lost to Mike Rodriguez, but Alonzo Menafield, you know, he, he beat Fabio Charant and the jury's still out over whether Fabio Charant is a UFC level fighter. You know, prior to that, his losses to Ovin St. Pruin and Devin Clark like showed some alarming deficiencies in in his loss to Devin Clark. He that was 
one of the worst displays of cardio I've ever seen at the UFC level from a non-heavyweight. And then going from that into the OSP fight, I felt better about Menafield there just because the other worst uh, display of cardio I've ever seen from a non-heavyweight in the UFC fight, you know, in the modern era, was OSP in the Krilov rematch. So I was like, well, you know, maybe both these guys will be need the oxygen tank at the end of the second round. But instead, Menafield came out much more measured. He came out as if he just said, I am not going to gas out in this fight. And instead, he just lost a firefight. He hurt OSP. OSP hurt him. They went back and forth. And despite Menafield being younger, faster, and probably comparably as strong, he's the one that got knocked out. Those those show avenues to victory for somebody to beat Alonzo Menafield. Just the question is whether it's Ed Herman. Uh, Herman's chin is not what it once was, not at 205 or 185. You know, his chin is can't get him through the battles that it did in his heyday. Uh, but his cardio is still good, as you pointed out. While he is super slow of hand and foot, he remains pretty kinetic on the ground. Like, uh, you know, if, if you get on the ground with him, he he's, he still is pretty quick in transition. Uh, he's he's uh, just he's a good grappler. Uh, if this goes past the first round, I'm looking at the live odds in this thing. Like, even if Menafield wins the first round, even if he hurts Herman, if this thing gets to the end of the first round, I'm looking real hard. At the, at the live odds on Ed Herman. The question is just, do I think it's going to make it to the end of the first round? If Keith were here, he'd be ranting and raving saying, this is my upset special, and he'd somehow <laughs> magically be right about it. I'm not as smart as Lev. I'm not as brave as Keith. I'm, well, I'm not as smart as Keith either, probably. I'm too chicken. I would love to see Ed Herman's unlikely success story you know, just power on. But, I mean, ultimately, if he wins this, he's won four in a row and he's going to get a real contender in his next fight and that's going to be ugly. So maybe this is the most merciful way for this this little adventure to end. But I'm I'm with you. Uh, feels going to catch him with something early on. Herman's not going to be able to recover quite like he, you know, once did or once would have. So he gets tagged shoots a desperation sing single and this thing probably ends with Menafield just like hammer fisting him in the side of the head against the fence like 15 times until the ref comes in and waves it off. It'll be kind of sad, but everything we've gotten from Ed Herman in the last five years, frankly, is just, you know, icing on the cake. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's been a fun career. Uh, he's been open himself about, eh, it's, you know, it, it's getting close to the end. I, I hope he actually was able to, you know, get into the UFC video game so that his son could play him. I'll never forget him asking that. You know, like, don't ask for bonuses. Ask to get in the UFC video game so that your, like, teenage kids can, can like, be you. Like, that's that that's a heartwarming story right there. Uh, but this fight will not be a heartwarming story. This is Alonzo Menafield by first-round knockout. Second from the top of the UFC 265 prelims is a matchup of two young bantamweights, uh, definitely in need of a UFC win. It is Vince Morales versus Draco Rodriguez. Morales... The 30-year-old from Idaho is 9-5 overall. He's 1-3 in the UFC. Uh, fought most recently all the way back last May, uh, where Chris Gutierrez kicked his legs out from underneath him at UFC on ESPN Woodley versus Burns. Previous to that, uh, he dropped a unanimous decision to Benito Lopez all the way back in July of 2019. Uh his lone UFC win was in May of that year uh, over Eamon Zahabi, and he lost to uh, Yadong Song, who appears later on this card 
in his UFC debut all the way back in 2018. He's taking on uh, Rodriguez. The uh, 25-year-old from Iowa is 7-2 and two overall. He's 0-1 in the UFC since joining out of uh, the 2020 version of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he lost to Zahabi uh, via first-round knockout at uh, UFC Fight Night Blades versus Lewis back in February. Uh, odds on this one close to a pick'em, but Rodriguez is just a very slight favorite. He's minus 115. Uh, Morales not quite uh, in the even money, but he is as low as minus 105 if you like him. Uh, Lev, who do you have winning this one? How do you think the fight looks? I think it's actually a very uh, fascinating fight. Uh, Vince Morales, uh, he's a lot better than you may think just looking at his record. For To begin with, uh, the fight against Benito Lopez was a huge robbery. Every single media outlet had Morales winning. He, In fact, many had him winning 30-27. So that was like a, an absolutely horrendous robbery. And the interesting thing about Vince Morales is he has a lot of, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but he has some very high-level skills. His footwork is excellent. His movement is excellent. His defense is, like, good. And initially I was looking at this like, man, these are, like, skills you don't even see out of, like, top contenders and even some of the world champions, right? So, But what really holds him back is that offensively he's just very lacking. Uh, from a technical standpoint, his boxing is decent but his hands just completely lack power and his kicks are even worse. They're like telegraphed and very, very weak. So he's very, he's a very hard guy to hit. He moves beautifully. Like again, he does have like some technical boxing, but he, he just doesn't have any punching power. His kicks are, are weak and, he, he does have a weakness to leg kicks, which was exploited by Chris Gutierrez, and which is, will be a problem against Draco Rodriguez, who has pretty powerful heavy leg kicks. Um, Draco Rodriguez, he has some skills. Uh, actually, his own footwork is, is pretty good. Not as good as uh, Morales's, but also pretty good. His defense, though, is much worse. He's he's a much easier guy to hit, and that's how he got uh, knocked out against uh, Eamon Zahabi. But he has a pretty heavy right cross. So it's one of those things where, yeah, his defense is worse, but is Vince Morales actually going to knock him out or hurt him? Probably not. Whereas I can definitely see over 15 minutes uh, Draco Rodriguez landing some heavy head, uh, should say leg kicks, uh, possibly landing his big right cross. And uh, I do see him winning a decision for that matter, even though I'm very impressed by some of Vince Morales' skills when you're just not really doing damage to the opponent, right? whereas the other opponent can absolutely inflict damage on you, it's hard to win. 
So I have Rodriguez by decision. Awesome. Uh, I I agree that you know in terms of like their overall skill sets, the, these guys aren't too far apart from each other. But the the fact that Rodriguez is just this his striking is more damaging, and he is a finisher as a as a grappler, you know, does make me lean towards him. Just every minute the the fight goes on, it uh, it does favor in in some ways the the more dynamic finisher you know, out, out of any two fighters. Uh, you know, Rodriguez really pinged my radar because he just destroyed one of my favorite uh, Houston area prospect, Leamana Martinez, on the Contender Series back in uh, in 2020. Just, you know, caught a kick, hustled him to the ground, and choked him all the way unconscious with, with a triangle. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if he's going to do that to, to Vince Morales, but, uh, like, on the feet, I do expect... Uh, him to to do damage with kicks uh if it goes to the ground i think it's probably going to go there more on rodriguez's terms and that will be danger zone for uh for morales as well uh i'm going with rodriguez here and i'm gonna go with uh rodriguez by this by decision morales has, has uh shown himself pretty durable to everything but repeated leg kicks uh so that that's not what I'm I'm picking to happen here. Uh, give me Rodriguez by decision as well. The featured prelim in Houston this Saturday is a lightweight matchup between Bobby Green and Rafael Faziv. Uh, Green, the 34-year-old Californian, is 27, 11, and one overall. He's eight, six, and one in the UFC. Uh, fought most recently on the UFC's Halloween Fight Night card, dropping a unanimous decision to Tiago Moises that snapped a three-fight winning streak uh, for him over Clay Guida, Lando Venata, and Alain Patrick. He's taking on Faziv. The 28-year-old Kyrgyzstani, by way of Thailand, is 9-1 and one overall. He's 3-1 and one, uh, in the UFC. He is currently on a three-fight win streak since dropping his uh, Octagon debut. He has beaten Alex White, Mark Ducasey, and most recently at UFC 256 last December, uh, Hanato Moicano, whom he knocked out with punches late in the first round. Uh, Faziv is a strong favorite here. He is minus 280 or so. You can get green as the underdog at plus 240. Uh, Lev. Are you are you feeling the these long odds here? Do you think uh, Fazeev has this one in the bag? Yeah, I I don't feel the long odds. I think this could be a very close, very difficult fight for Fazeev. Uh, I think Bobby Green, um, he's always had a ton of potential, and I think he started to really figure it out. Even though he's obviously a little bit past his athletic prime, and he has quite a few miles on him, but he he really showed significant improvement just suddenly <laughs> in his early 30s after so many fights where he didn't show any improvement, but he, sh he suddenly showed this improvement. Uh, and uh, I want to say that there were a lot of people who thought that he actually should have beaten Tiago Moises, but that was a decision that went the wrong way. So I, I'm curious if the judges had given him that one, which would have been by no means a bad decision if they went with Green. He'd be on a four-fight winning streak, and 
I think these odds would be a lot closer. Uh, Either that, or he's the guy that would have been getting bulldozed by. Uh, um, Mahachev. Yeah, by Islam Mahachev, yeah. you know, uh, last month. Yeah, that, that's possible as well. But yeah, he's uh, he's really like worked on his wrestling more now, which he incorporates a lot better with his striking. He's really just concentrated on throwing nice, clean punches as opposed to, uh, I, I don't know, sometimes he would clown around in some of his fights. Uh, I think that's why he got knocked out against Dustin Poirier. Um, or using a Philly shell, which, I mean, yeah, it looks nice. I don't think it has a place in MMA, and I say this as a former amateur boxer. <laughs> um but yeah, he's been he's been fighting a lot better, and uh, I think he'll be able to probably neutralize Fiziev's grappling, and I think he will be able to certainly hold his own in the striking. He's still uh, faster than average. He still has some nice uh, straight punches. So I see this being a very close fight um the question is can he can he win a close decision because he's certainly dropped a lot of close decisions in his career um you know what let's just uh let, let's go with one upset i'll choose bobby green by decision awesome uh <clears throat> I, I do ag agree with you in that green has all the tools to like make this a very very difficult night uh for Fiziev. he's always had all the tools i don't know if if we've known each other long enough or have talked enough about this for me to have introduced you to this concept but i do have a a all-time list of scream at the tv fighters and oh, okay. bobby green has been in the top three for close to a decade just where sure. you're screaming at the tv because of just things that they repeatedly do that are just maddening and with uh bobby green it is underusing his wrestling which has always been good like mm -hmm. you know former college wrestler like explosive uh entries for his double leg and single leg but we'll, we'll never use it you don't know why maybe it just seems like too much work it's tiring to wrestle uh and then yes talking about the showboating on the feet the the philly shelf the bobbing and weaving the, the like pointing when he has the same problem michael johnson does where he thinks that by making you miss him he's winning rounds right and which is why he would just drop some lousy split decisions to guys that frankly were not as skilled as him uh you know uh jorge masvidal spent some years on the, the scream at the tv team because he would do the same thing right. you know uh uh he really did seem to have kind of turned that corner on the three fight winning yeah. streak. It wasn't over the highest level guys on the planet, you know, Guida, the Venata rematch and, and Patrick, but just the fact that he didn't lose any of them by doing dumb stuff was a very heartening sign. You know, then he got Moises, who's a legit elite fighter and arguably could have won that fight. But again, if he lost, it's not because he did dumb stuff. It's just because Moises was a better fighter against Fazeev, man. I mean, we're talking about a guy that only has 10 career fights, mostly because he's too busy being the Muay Thai instructor at Tiger Muay Thai. Like, that says a lot for, for like, his, his striking skills. <sighs> Even if this is, like, the new, improved 
Bobby Green, you know, the third act Bobby Green. I just I, I worry that, that, that this is the wrong guy for him. Uh, you know, Fazeev is fast. He hits hard. All of his strikes have power, uh, good footwork. He's defensively sound. Like Green would have to fight a smart fight for three rounds to beat him. And while I am super tempted to uh, to take the upset here, and I know that you're like being the ballsy one and like uh, going out on the limb here, I am going to be uh, like the boring square and say that Fazeev does pull this out. Uh, but I am gonna I'm going to say that this makes it to the final uh, to the final horn. You know, Green has remained durable. He's always he's always been pretty durable, and I'm gonna say uh, he has his moments but he does lose a decision here. Uh, one little fun fact for you. Bobby Green was actually a pretty big favorite against Tiago Moises. He was like a minus 300 favorite in that fight. So it, it really shows you how quickly like uh, people's confidence can turn, although part of that is just the massive amount of respect they have in Fiziev, especially after he knocked out Moicano in one round. And... Now that I think about it, that fight was a bit of a coming out party for Moises, you know. Yeah. I, but I, I did not remember the odds being that wide. That That is, wow. The five-fight main card of UFC 265 kicks off with a bantamweight matchup between uh, Yadong Song and Casey Kenny. Song, the 23-year-old uh, Chinese fighter by way of Sacramento, is... 16 5 and 1 with one no contest overall. He is 4 1 and 1 in the UFC. He's 3 1 and 1 in the UFC at Bantamweight since he did have uh, a lone win at Featherweight over Marlon Vera last year. Uh, he lost his last fight. Uh, it was back in March. He dropped a unanimous decision to Kyler Phillips at UFC 259, uh, the first real blemish on his uh, UFC ledger. He's taking on Kenny. The 30-year-old Arizonan is 16-3-1 overall. He's 5-2 in the UFC. Uh, he fought most recently in March at UFC 259 as well, dropping a split decision to former champ Dominic Cruz. That uh, ended a three-fight win streak for him over Louis Smolka, uh, Haley, and Nathaniel Wood. Odds on this one, fairly close, but Kenny is the favorite right now. He is minus 120 or so. You can get Song at even money and maybe even uh, plus 102 or so. Uh, I I write, you know, for those who don't know, I write a fight week column for uh, SureDog called uh, Stand and Deliver that uh, focuses on three or four fighters on the upcoming card who are under a little additional pressure or under a little more pressure to perform uh, in this fight than just the strict, wins and losses would seem to indicate and usually it's one fighter on one side of you know the fight like for example uh one of the ones this week was surreal gone and i'll explain when we get to that fight why i think he's under more pressure to win than Derek lewis is this one was a rare case of me uh putting both fighters in a single fight on the list and the reason is as bantamweight just goes through the the roof uh, it, I mean, it's such a division on the rise right now. I don't think it's the best division in the UFC. Don't let the UFC booth tell you that. It's not true, but it is a it, it is a rapidly improving division with uh, just a huge influx of of young talent. At the same time, that there are still some legends at the top that are 
you know, still relatively close to their prime. This is all of a sudden becoming a really, really hard division to even get on the radar of like the top 10 or top 15. Uh, and in Song and Kenny, you, we've got two guys, they're coming off a loss, but neither of them are terrible losses. You know, uh, the story of the Kenny versus Cruz fight was mostly how good Cruz looked for most people I talked to. It wasn't that Kenny laid an egg. It was just everyone was surprised to see how good Dominic Cruz looked in, in that fight. And similarly, uh, you know, Song, he lost to Phillips. But if Phillips keeps panning out like the prospect, uh, I think he is, that's a loss that probably will age pretty well uh, in, in the long run. What neither of these guys can afford is two in a row. And all you need to know about that is that Marab Dvalishvili, who is on a six-fight winning streak in this division that really should be seven because he was robbed uh, in that, like, no-tap technical submission by Ricky Simone. He should be on a seven-fight win streak. He is constantly b bouncing in and out of the Sherdog top 15 at Bantamweight. That's how hard it is to get ranked in this division. A guy that is on a six-fight win streak that should be seven, like, can't even stay in the top 15. Both of these are young guys. But whoever loses, I mean, it, it's the, the kind of division where a single loss will set you back for a long, long time. And in in that dynamic, it's becoming kind of like uh, lightweight and welterweight. I mean, look no further than uh, Vicente Luque, who fights further up this card, for a guy who will win five, six fights in a row, lose one at the wrong time, and it'll send them all the way to the back of the line. Uh, that's going to happen to one of these guys. Uh, you know, that's just that's the kind of shark tank this division is becoming. What I'm going to ask you, Lev, is who takes the L this weekend? Well, the question is, uh, will the judges actually score this fight correctly? Because <laughs> the way I'm looking at it, Song Yadong, he's lost three fights in a row. He lost to Cody Stamen. Uh, the fact that it was a majority draw is absolutely insane. Cody Stamen 100% won that fight. Um, I don't know how much clearer that one could have been. Uh, then he fights Marlon Chito Vera. Marlon Vera clearly wins rounds two and round three, and yet the judges give it to Song Yadong. Finally, against Kyler Phillips, he loses in such a one-sided manner that they incredibly actually do give the fight to the other guy. But he's lost three fights in a row, and uh, you can speculate why it is that judges keep giving him either a draw or a win that he absolutely in no way deserves. But in terms of his actual performance in the cage, he's on a free he's on a free fight losing streak. And I think if the judges call this fight fairly, then it should be a very clear victory for Casey Kenny, who I think is substantially more skilled. Uh, what does Song Yadong do? Uh, Song Yadong has good boxing. He has good technical boxing. He can throw hard punches, right? Um, he's a little bit slow against the better strikers in the division. He does not incorporate kicks very well. Uh, he does have takedown defense, but that takedown defense does diminish itself uh, round by round, which we saw against Cody Stamen, who was finally able to get him down in round three and eventually uh, dominate him. And he's also a very large muscular bantamweight, so he has some cardio issues. 
Casey Kenny has really good cardio. He is pretty quick for the division, and he also incorporates his kicks a lot better. So I can maybe see, uh, not even necessarily, but maybe uh, Song Yudong can win round one. Uh, I think Casey Kenny uh, should very much have a large advantage in rounds two and three. The only question is, what are the judges going to do? Is it going to be like the Marlon Vera fight where Song Yudong loses, but they give him the decision win anyway? But if not, my choice is absolutely uh, Casey Kenny by decision. That's uh, a fantastic breakdown. Uh, my, I, when, when I look at Kenny, I, I also think he is, uh, you know, a good wrestler. And his, he, the times he's had a really hard time are when he's not proven to be the better wrestler in the cage that night. I mean, when you're talking about uh, Marab and Dominic Cruz, uh, I mean, Marab was able to take Kenny down. And then Kenny was not able to take Cruz down sometimes when, when I think he would have liked to, both times that, that worked against him. If he decides to just embrace his, uh, his inner wrestler and take Song down early and often, I think this is definitely his fight to lose. Kenny's, I don't want to call it a flaw because I love it in him, but his, his willingness and eagerness to get in the crowd-pleasing crowd scraps if he if he indulges that, that can lead to some hard to score rounds. We have seen what the judges do with hard to score rounds, and some even not very hard to score rounds when it comes to uh, to Song Yudong. So, I am going to pick uh, Kenny to do the smart thing here, and uh, you know, take take Song down, tire him out, wear him out, and just win this thing going away. But you know, if he decides to test his fortunes on the feet, this might be. You know, maybe they might win fight of the night, but he might not get his win bonus. So uh, we'll see. But I'm I'm going with Kenny by decision here as well. And I, I hope and kind of expect that it will be a wrestling heavy uh, decision. Uh, I will say about Casey Kenny, he was definitely in a big wrestling disadvantage against Manny Bermudez because Manny B Bermudez was one and a half to two weight classes <laughs> higher than him. And... Manny Bermudez did take him down uh, a number of times that fight. Casey Kenny, uh, he still managed to win. Like, I remember watching that fight and going, wow, this guy has unbelievable heart and grit, right? Here he is, like, so much smaller than this guy. Like, it was a, it was a striking size disadvantage if you just watch him in the cage. And he wasn't intimidated by it at all he still found a way to win it was it was very impressive and i want to say actually nathaniel wood who's, who's a good wrestler is at least as good of a wrestler as casey kenny was so he's definitely shown an ability to beat guys who are as good or even better than him in terms of wrestling those are those are good points like yeah well taken we head now to the strawweight division for a rematch uh, six years in the making. It is Tisha Torres versus Angela Hill 2. Torres, the 31-year-old uh, American top team stalwart, is 12-5 and five overall. She's 8-5 and five, uh, in the UFC. She is on a two-fight winning streak currently over uh, Sam Hughes, whom she beat 
bloody and uh, into a doctor stoppage between rounds at UFC 256 last December. Prior to that, she took a unanimous decision over Brianna Van Buren last June. That snapped a four-fight losing streak for her, uh, which had led many observers, I, myself frankly included, to pronounce her uh, career, at least as a factor in the division, over. Those uh, reports turn out to have been somewhat premature, uh, as, again, she is she's won back-to-back -back fights and looked very good in doing so. Uh, she is taking on uh, Hill. The 36-year-old uh, Marylander by way of San Diego is 13-9 and nine overall. She's 8-9 and nine in the UFC. Uh, she won her last outing, taking a unanimous decision over Ashley Yoder in March at UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad. That snapped a two-fight losing streak for her, both of them via split decision to Michelle Watterson last September and Claudia Gedalia uh, last May and before Lev uh, uh, snakes me on this one, I thought she won the Gedalia fight. Uh, <laughs> yeah, at any rate, uh, Torres, the slight favorite here. She is minus 135. Um, if you like Angie Overkill, you can get her at plus 115 on the comeback. Uh, Lev Hill, a longtime uh, resident of my uh, Scream at the TV list. Um, but uh, tell me who you like in this one, the resurgent Torres or the ever mercurial Hill? Well, I'm, I'm not sure she's uh, an ever mercurial Hill because I think she's massively improved uh, ever since her win over Carnalosi. She's really uh, just improved her skills in every area in terms of her wrestling, her uh, takedown defense, her ground game, her striking. She fights a lot smarter, like, just a really huge improvement in in every regard. Uh, however, Tisha Torres, she really surprised me as well because after quite a bit of stagnation, she just looked like a completely different fighter against Brianna Van Buren. And I was actually really high on Brianna Van Buren. I thought I think she's like a tremendously skilled fighter who's, who's just a little too short and lacks reach for the division. Uh, but Tisha Torres is only like a little bit taller and only has a little bit more reach on her. So I was, I was really impressed when Tisha Torres just uh, really dominated that fight, just showed a massive improvement in her striking ability. Um, and then obviously uh, against Sam Hughes just stopped her. Uh, it's interesting because before that Brianna Van Buren fight, I would have I would have chosen Angela Hill. I think I would think her striking is better, more technical. But actually, after the significant improvement I saw against Brianna Van Buren, I'm actually choosing Tisha Torres. Uh, the reason being is that Tisha Torres has really good cardio. And Angela Hill, she's worked on her cardio, but it's still something that is a relative weakness. And with her now getting up there a little in age, she's 36, uh, it, it's going to become more of a factor. Like, for instance, when Angela Hill fought Michelle Waterston, she clearly won the first two rounds. But then, you know, there was, she slowed down and allowed Waterston to, to win that split decision. 
And I, I understand that this is only three rounds. It's not five rounds. But with round one and at least the first half of round two probably being at least pretty close with the improvements we see with Tisha Torres, her cardio is going to give her uh, an advantage over the second half of round two and possibly just win round three for her. And that's that's very significant, uh, especially in what I anticipate to be a striking battle, because I think uh, I don't see Torres having enough wrestling to get Hill down. And as a result, that's why I see Torres winning the decision. Her cardio is just better, and I don't think Hill, if she has any uh, superiority in the striking, it's enough to make up for that. I, I see this as a really close matchup, and I feel as though it hinges on all the things that you kind of pointed out. Uh, I look forward to seeing the contrast in in striking. You know, Hill is, you know, very much a Muay Thai-flavored uh, striker. Uh, she, I think she's most comfortable and functions her best when, you know, she's allowed to dictate distance, despite, despite not being a super tall uh, straw weight. You know, she she fights pretty rangy. She fights behind a jab. She has some nice long kicks. Uh and even though her clinch is is good, I, I think she prefers it when people don't uh, don't crowd her. So I'm interested in the dynamic of Torres, who will need to come forward to uh, get within uh, her preferred range, and certainly is not averse to clinching and kind of using her strength and and low center of gravity. Uh, and the the dynamic regarding the cardio is exactly what you say. You know, the tiny tornado is the perfect uh, nickname for Tisha Torres who is short, high volume striker, like a little whirlwind and, you know, tends to be like a, just a little energizer bunny of uh, of cardio. I am banking on uh, Hill's cardio having continued to improve. Uh, and I'm even though I, you know, again, I, I see this fight hinging on the same things that, that you do. I am going to bank on Hill's uh, cardio being improved enough to if not win the third round, at least, you know, you know, perhaps winner the first two and keep the wheels from completely falling off the wagon in the third. So I'm going to go with the uh, very slight upset here and go with Hill by decision. Third from the top, we have a high stakes welterweight matchup between Michael Maverick Chiesa and Vicente, the silent assassin, Luque. Chiesa, the 33-year-old from Washington State, is 18-4 and four overall. He is 11-4 and four since joining the UFC uh, as the winner of Season 16 of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, more specifically, he is 4-1, uh, and one, I believe, since uh, moving up to welterweight uh, after several years of being the most ludicrously like Titanic <laughs> uh, lightweight on, on roster. Um, he takes on... Uh, oh, and sorry, he's on a four-fight winning streak. Probably ought to mention that, considering I just talked about how many fights you have to win in a row to even get ranked at, you know, at welterweight. He has defeated Carlos Condit, Diego Sanchez, Rafael Dos Anjos, and most recently, back in January, uh, Neil Magny, whom he defeated uh, via unanimous decision in the headliner of UFC on ESPN 20, thus vaulting himself unambiguously, you know, in, into the into the welterweight top 10. He faces uh, Luque, the 29-year-old Brazilian by way of South Florida, is 27-1 and one overall. 
He is 13 and three since joining the UFC as a standout from season 21 of The Ultimate Fighter. He is on a three fight winning streak of his own, having defeated Nico Price uh, and Randy Brown last year, both of them in absolutely sensational barn burners, and then uh, defeated uh, former champ Tyron Woodley back in March uh, via first round uh, Darce Choke. And it was at least the most exciting Tyron Woodley fight in a while. Uh, odds on this one are dead even as of uh, Wednesday of fight week. You can get both gentlemen at minus 110. Lev, who do you like in this one? And do you think either of them has like realistic potential to, to make a run up the rankings once they get a boost off the other man's shoulders? Well, it's uh, it's an interesting fight because uh, Michael Chiesa, his grappling is just tremendous. Uh, he has such a great mix of both wrestling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but not just that. He has top control and just how fluid he is and going from one position to another. It's just fantastic to watch. Uh, he's probably one of the best grapplers in all of MMA, quite frankly. He, he's really that impressive. And he, he's he's really good in terms of beating dangerous strikers who have good grappling of their own. I mean, he beat uh, Rafael Dos Anjos that way. So, yeah, it, it's very tough. And um, I think the odds are very reasonable. And yet, uh, Vicente Luque is a very hard opponent for him to face because Vicente Luque does have uh, very good grappling of his own. He's got good wrestling. He's got good takedown defense. When uh, I, I know this was a few years ago and both guys have improved, but when Luque fought uh, Leon Edwards, uh, Leon Edwards is a guy with, with very good wrestling as well, very underrated wrestling. He, uh, he out-wrestled uh, Rafael Dos Anjos as well. Um, it was actually Luque who I think had uh, a very slight wrestling advantage. Uh, now, if if Luque does get on his back, he is a little bit limited there, although he does post up very nicely, which he did when he was briefly taken down by Randy Brown. Um but yeah, he his his wrestling and his takedown defense is just really solid, and I do think he does have a very large striking advantage, and it's it's also the kind of advantage where I do think Kiesa could be in some trouble if he doesn't get him down more quickly. Uh, Kiesa does have a cardio advantage, so. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, there's certainly a, a very good argument for Chiesa, but in situations like this where a guy is is so is so solid, a grappler would really have to be just either sensational or have less of a weakness on the feet for me to choose them. So. Ultimately, I will choose uh, I will choose Luque, and 
Let's even let's even yeah, let's even go with knockout. I was like hoping to to be the only one of us that, that saw this this way, but uh, clearly you're on the same wavelength I am. Uh, Vicente Luque, I've had to revise my thinking about him because a few years ago, he was already one of the more reliable action fighters in the welterweight division. Like over the course of about two years, he and Nico Price and Randy Brown had a, I, they basically had a round robin where they all fought each other at least once. Um, and now at this point, uh, Luke and Price have fought twice and all of them were like fight of the night candidates. They were some of the most just wild, entertaining, uh, scraps. And Luke came out on top of those, you know, he definitely came out uh, above, uh, Brown and Price in those, but he just struck me as a guy that would never quite string together enough wins in such a murderous division to actually make a run at contention. And all of a sudden he is. And I mean, I, I'm happy for that like he's one of the nicest dudes in in the sport and he's remained very entertaining even as as he's like started beating higher and and, and higher level fighters but what you pointed out his strengths and kiesa's weaknesses do not match up well for kiesa and and vice versa like kiesa's strengths don't provide him i i think as obvious or easy an avenue to victory as uh as as Luque's do against uh, against him uh you know Kiesa he's a he's a good offensive striker but he's always been hittable always been vulnerable he's he's been hurt to the body quite a few times uh Luque is definitely cap- capable of testing him to the body if it stays on the feet Luque has just a tremendous advantage uh in power uh he throws a greater variety of strikes and if it goes to the ground he's not a complete slouch there either I mean he's I, he trained, you know, Baletudo before he even trained BJJ, but he's trained both from a, a young teenager. It's just not something that gets shown very often because he gets in so many wild, entertaining slugfests. Uh, Kiesa can finish this if it goes to the ground. He is, you know, there are a lot of black belts in the UFC, but Michael Kiesa has always been the kind of guy that victimizes even other supposedly very good grapplers. Just he's an absolutely venomous offensive grappler. And He's not quite there, but he's on the shelf just right beneath like Damian Maya and Juicy A Formiga as like just some of the greatest back take back control specialists in UFC history. You know, especially in the early run of his career when he was at lightweight, just he destroyed so many guys by taking their back effortlessly, locking the triangle and choking them. Uh, I was wondering if that would remain the case when he moved up to welterweight. Would he be able to do it on UFC welterweights? Uh, thus far, he's been just fine. I mean, Condit and Sanchez were obviously both well past their prime when he when he beat them, but he absolutely bullied both those guys on the ground, and both of those guys are very good grapplers. And in both cases, it's kind of in both cases he ended up in situations where he did things to them, got them in in uh, positions using one arm that most grapplers would need two arms to do. Like mm-hmm. I swear against Sanchez, or, or no, I think it was against Condit. He had him like, yeah. like a hammerlock, basically. Yes, I was like, yes. like, how is Carlos Condit being just completely big brothered like this? Uh, I can't get that out of my mind. Like, if it goes to the ground, as good as uh, Luque is, uh, Kiesa could certainly do that to him. But I don't think it's going to get there. Uh, I think Kiesa is going to start getting the worst of things on the feet pretty quickly. And while he is a good, like, he's a good wrestler, he's he's found ways to get fights to the ground. 
he doesn't have a great like just fast entry shot like you know uh, a collegiate wrestler uh, convert uh, uh yeah i i, I think luke is gonna hurt him maybe even hurt him early and case is gonna take just too much fire on on the way and either get knocked out on the feet or dropped and, and finished on the ground uh i'm picking luke by first round knockout and it's not an indication that i think luke is that much better than than Chiesa. i think they're both top 10 quality guys it's just the way their strengths and weaknesses match up with each other but i'm i'm with you uh luke by knockout and actually you had asked me earlier in terms of these guys as contenders uh while i think they're both excellent excellent fighters i don't see either of them as like serious contenders i think Usman uh, absolutely destroys both of them. I think Colby Covington absolutely destroys both of them. I think Leon Edwards has uh, maybe a little bit of trouble with Chiesa, but I think most likely he significantly outpoints both of them as well. Uh, I think he's improved a lot since his first fight against uh, Vicente Luque. So uh, unfortunately, I don't see them. Uh, really doing much against the top of the division. It is a murderous division. It's tough. Yeah. You have to, I mean, you have to win five or six. Unless you're someone like Kiesa who came over already as a top 10 fighter from another division. Like, if you're just working your way up from the bottom, like Luke had to, you have to win five, six, seven fights in a row, even to get a look from the top 15. And the, the sledding doesn't get any easier from there. Like, as you pointed out, the top five of this division is just absolutely brutal. Uh, you know, t- tough, tough place to work. Yeah. Oh, speaking of tough, I said off the top that uh, Kiesa was a veteran of the Ultimate Fighter 16. That's not true. It's the Ultimate Fighter 15. It's Magni who uh, who won uh, or who came out of tough 16. Anyway, just so the comment section doesn't come get me. That brings us to the co-main event of UFC 265, a bantamweight matchup between former uh, featherweight champ Jose Aldo and uh, rising contender uh, Pedro Munoz. Aldo, the 34-year-old Brazilian, is 29-7 and overall. He is 11-6 and in the UFC. Uh, he is 19-6 and across his UFC and uh, legendary WEC careers. He is uh, currently uh, won his last fight, taking a unanimous decision over Marlon Vera, at UFC Fight Night Thompson versus Neil last December. That snapped a three-fight losing streak that had uh, spurred his move from the featherweight division down to bantamweight. Though, in fairness to him, those were losses to Alexander Volkanovsky, your current top featherweight in the world, Marlon Moraes in a fight that many thought he won, and then a fight that at least started out competitive against Piotr Jan, uh, at UFC 251 last July. He's taking on uh, Munoz, uh, who is two days older. They both turned 35 uh, in early September, but he is a 34-year-old from Sao Paulo. He is 19-5 and five with one no contest overall. He is 9-5 and five with one no contest in the UFC. He uh, also won his last fight, taking a unanimous decision over Jimmy Rivera, at UFC Fight Night, Rosenstrike versus Gone in February. That snapped a uh, two-fight skid for him in which he had lost a unanimous decision to Aljamain Sterling and a split decision to Frankie Edgar, which took place in the headliner of UFC on ESPN 15 last August. 
Uh, this one, like several other fights on this card, is basically a pick 'em right now. Uh, as of when I looked this morning, both men were minus 110. I'm not sure if that line has moved, but at any rate, uh, this is a real close one on paper. Uh, Lev, who have you got and how? Well, you just stunned me with that uh, little factoid that actually uh, Jose Aldo is two days younger than Pedro Munoz. I didn't realize Pedro Munoz was actually <laughs> right around that same age. That really uh, took me back. Uh, not that it changes my uh, analysis, but... But no, like before someone told me that, and I I think I first found that out a couple weeks ago, I would have mm-hmm. assumed that Aldo was like four or five years older, just yeah, based me on too. just based on the tread off the tires, and also based on the fact that Aldo was like front and center on our radar from the time he was like twenty three years old as part of it. But yeah, it's shocking. Uh, but in this fight, uh, I would say that the current Jose Aldo he is has a lot of similarities to Pedro Munoz. They throw very powerful technical punches there. Uh, largely boxers. Uh, uh, I I don't see a lot of grappling in this one, even though both are very good grapplers, and Jose Aldo used that to win round three against Marlon Vera. But just in terms of the striking, I see Pedro Munoz as having a much more reliable chin. Uh, we've seen Jose Aldo get hurt pretty early against Marlon Marais. And I would say that Pedro Munoz early is about as dangerous as Marlon Marais is. Uh, I also think that perhaps Munoz might have a slight cardio advantage. Uh, we, we have seen Aldo fade a little bit even into round three. So they have very similar qualities where they're both uh, both largely these very powerful technical, precise uh, boxers, but it's just that Munoz has like some advantages due to less miles on him, uh, this being more of a natural weight class for him. So just that combination of a sturdier chin, slightly better cardio, and maybe even at this point, slightly better defense. I think he should be favored. I actually know that uh, Munoz, he started out as uh, more of an underdog. He, I think he started out at less like plus 120. So it, it seems a lot of people have a similar idea since it's now uh, swung to even odds. Uh, I'll go with Munoz by decision. The... One, I, I mean, I should probably mention here, and I imagine you feel somewhat the same about this, that the notion that Aldo could drop to Bantamweight at the stage of his career when he did and even be competitive against the top guys in the world was a bit shocking. It was, it was, yeah. Well, he's one of the greatest fighters ever, uh, possibly even like a top five uh, fighter of all time, of course, it, completely depends on your criteria, but he's just such an unbelievable legend. He's so great, and it's just another testament to how great Jose Aldo was, that he managed to do it, and he arguably beat Marlon Marais. He won round two against Piotr Jan, who's just so phenomenal, right, and gave him a tough fight, and then 
beat a very, very good fighter in Marlon Vera. It just, it, it, yes, because as you point out, you know, he's an absolute legend. Depending on your criteria, he could certainly be one of the, the five most accomplished fighters we've ever seen. Uh, I still think he's the greatest featherweight uh, of all time. Um, you know, Me too. Uh, but if there's one thing that even in his absolute heyday, when, you know, he slaughtered everyone in the WEC, slaughtered his first six or seven opponents in the UFC, the one thing I never thought was this guy could drop the bantamweight. Because the one problem was that he had an obvious, obviously hard weight cut. He looked like death warmed over on the scale. Um, and if anything, I thought he'd be moving up to 155 by this <laughs> point in his career. Instead, he moved down. And instead of just dehydrating himself to death, has actually rebuilt his his body. It's It's in some ways one of the most impressive things he's done. Because for once, he didn't make it look easy. Like this is something that obviously took planning and enormous amounts of effort and discipline to do. And in many ways did not rely on his natural tools and skill set. He just did a very hard thing to stay competitive and, and relevant at this point in his career. Like all props to Jose Aldo. Another thing about Jose Aldo during, especially like the WEC and early UFC part of his career is that you d you describe him quite accurately as a crisp and powerful boxer now, but there was a time when his leg kicks were the single yeah. most dangerous part of his game. And he seemed to abandon those entirely or almost entirely, you know, for, for most of his, his uh, later UFC run. They put an appearance back in, in the Verify. They, I mean, it wasn't vintage, uh, Aldo, where it was just like, kick your legs until you can't stand it anymore. And then you make a mistake and he knocks you out. But it was the first time in a long time I had seen his leg kicks actually affect the flow of the fight. Like his leg kicks made Vera make adjustments that then let Aldo win the fight. That was the first time he'd done that in several years. If he does that against Munoz, I, I think the tenor of this fight changes because if, if they just engage in a boxing heavy kickboxing match, I, I do think uh, Munoz is going to get the better of it. Uh, he's a relatively fast starter. Uh, Aldo used to be an incredibly fast starter. He it really isn't anymore. And, I could see Munoz just either, you know, socking away the first two rounds or even hurting Aldo and, and finishing this. If Aldo starts leaning on, on his on his leg kicks, that changes everything. I just don't know if I trust him to do so. Uh, so even though th these guys are, uh, you know, even on, on the odds, I, I see this as probably a pretty straightforward win for Munoz and, you know, a, definitely a huge name on uh, on his ledger, uh, a level up moment for him in this very crowded top 10, top five of the, the Bantamweight division because, uh, you know, Aldo is still a great win right now, not just a, a great name. And I'm, I'm going with Munoz by decision. Uh, I will add just one uh, thing, which is another interesting wrinkle, is that uh, Munoz has extremely good uh, calf kicks of his own. And he also has an absolutely devastating front kick. Actually, one of maybe one of the best in all of MMA. Uh, he didn't get a chance to use that so much uh, in his last fight uh, because of all the side-to-side -side movement. But I do think that if Jose Aldo uh, does try to engage him with uh, 
just standing in front of him and throwing powerful shots, which Frankie Edgar was very smart not to do. He did not go toe-to-toe with him. I actually think Munoz won that fight anyway, but uh, regardless, uh, I think if he does plant his feet and stay in front of him and try to throw leg kicks of his own, I think Munoz has a very good chance of winning against him in terms of kicks because his kicks are absolutely tremendous as well. Well, and I'm I'm glad you bring that up because it adds another uh, adds another layer to this dynamic because you know, I mentioned the Vera fight. Aldo didn't really start out throwing a lot of kicks. Like it was mm-hmm. Vera who started throwing kicks, and then Aldo was like, "I don't like this. I'm going to start kicking you back," and that kind of changed the tide. Um, I makes you wonder, like, what, will Aldo come out not really planning on throwing kicks, and just if Munoz doesn't throw any, this just becomes you know mostly a boxing match. Uh, is he going to try to lean into that, seeing how well it helped him against Vera? Or, you know, will he get into a kicking contest if Munoz starts one? Like, I, I just have no idea, like, what Aldo's game plan looks like or, you know, what adjustments he'll make. But, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And I think we'll learn a lot probably within just the first 90 seconds to two minutes of the fight. Huh. That's 12 fights down, and we arrive at the main event. It is five rounds of scheduled heavyweight action for the interim title between Derek the Black Beast Lewis and Surreal Bongaman Gan. Lewis, the 36-year-old uh, Houston native, is 25-7 and seven with one no contest overall. He is 15-5 and five with one no contest in the UFC. He's on a four-fight winning streak, stretching all the way back to uh, fall of 2019. Most recently, he defeated Curtis Blades at... Uh, UFC Fight Night 185 back in February, knocking him out uh, really with a single hellacious uppercut uh, early in the second round of of their fight uh, after, you know, uh, being on the receiving end of Blades' trademark wrestling for most of the first. Prior to that, uh, he knocked out Alexi Olenek uh, early in the second round of their fight after uh, flirting with danger on the ground with Olenek for most of the first. before that, he took uh, somewhat more prosaic decisions over Alir Latifi and Blagoy Ivanov. He's taking on Gan, the uh, undefeated prospect, now contender, now possible champ, is 31 years old, born in Paris. Uh, he is a perfect 9-0 overall. He's a perfect 6-0 in the UFC. Uh, fought just six weeks ago, taking a one-sided unanimous decision over Alexander Volkov in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 190. Uh, Prior to that, he took a similarly one-sided decision over Jairzinho Rosenstrike uh, in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 186 back in February. Uh, Before that, uh, knocked out Junior Dos Santos uh, in the second round. Uh, Before that, Tanner Bozer, Dantel Mays, and Rafael Pessoa round out his undefeated uh, UFC slate. Uh, Gan, despite being the uh, younger, less uh, experienced fighter, definitely a massive favorite here, biggest favorite on the card, uh, currently out there around minus 375 and trending further in that direction as Lewis is out there plus uh, 310, plus 320 or so as the uh, as the underdog. Uh, on my uh, own, like, non-Sherdog weekly podcast, Unleashed, which you have guested on before, Lev. 
I delivered uh, on Monday night an impromptu rant that if it had been written, probably would have been titled Everything You Think You Know About Derek Lewis's Game is a Lie. Uh, I will kind of kind of throw it out here. I cannot believe that Derek Lewis, or, or I cannot believe that Surreal Gone is almost a four to one favorite over Derek Lewis. I would argue that there is not an active heavyweight on the planet who should be a four to one favorite over Derek Lewis right now. Uh, I think his game is kind of misunderstood and it's intentionally misunderstood. There's a bit of crazy like a fox there. Like he, he presents himself as this kind of, you know, silly, jokey, lazy guy. One, because he is silly and jokey and probably a little bit lazy, but two, because it invites people to underestimate him. Uh, people think of him as, you know, just a brawling slugger. That's not entirely accurate. He throws flying knees. He throws some very untelegraphed head kicks. People think of him as this kind of, you know, barrel-chested guy who looks perhaps not to be in the best of shape. That's not, even if it's accurate, it's not the whole story. At this point, he is the uh, UFC heavyweight division's all-time leader in knockouts. But for several years now, he's already been the heavyweight division's all-time leader in knockouts in the third round or later. He is he has eclipsed Yoel Romero as the gold standard of the fighter who continues to throw effective fight-ending offense late in fights after he already looks tired. Uh, he he presents as a guy who just wants to. Uh, who just wants to slug it out on the feet, you know, first one that shoots a dusty bitch. Uh, while I'm sure he would prefer to slug it out on the feet, uh, he's not helpless on the ground. It's not that he is any kind of conventional wrestler or grappler. It's just that for some reason, MMA does not work on Derek Lewis. He kind of waits a few minutes. He bench presses you off and he stands back up uh, unless you're Daniel Cormier. But you have to go back a ways to the last time that Derek Lewis was like, losing bad fights to to not good fighters uh he has kind of made incremental improvements to his game despite the fact that you know he presents as someone who doesn't you know take training ultra ultra seriously i think he's going to present surreal gone with some puzzles to solve that gone is in no way prepared for uh you know gone his has a couple of absolutely you know, restaurant quality top 10 wins over Jairzinho Rosenstrike and Alexander Volkov in his last two fights. But Rosenstrike and Volkov were both like deers in headlights. Uh, I, I like Lewis isn't going to do that. Uh, Lewis is going to try to draw him out. Uh, Lewis will be willing to take uh, some of his shots to try to land some of his own. And while gone, even uh, as relatively new to MMA as he is, he might throw a more complete arsenal of strikes th than Lewis does. Uh, he hasn't exhibited the same kind of one-shot power that Lewis has. Well, I'm no nobody in the history of the heavyweight division possibly has, has demonstrated the same kind of uh, one-shot power that Lewis has. But, you know, gone as good as he is at everything, one-shot uh, power is probably the, the one like little category where he's like, ah, you know, average to above average uh, for, for a UFC heavyweight. I, this is, I, this is the biggest underdog on the card, but when I pick the upset here, it's not just because I'm being a homer because, hey, you know, Houston represents. It's because I think the line is way off. And 
unlike some underdogs, like the underdog here has clear and demonstrable and uh, proven routes to victory. So while I could certainly see Gon, you know, winning a decision or even grinding down Lewis in, in the later rounds and, and getting a finish, you know, either tapping him out or punching him out on the ground, I'm not picking it to happen. Uh, give me Derek Lewis by a second round knockout. Well, that would certainly be a, a very exciting finish, but uh, I think Gagne, if anything, probably should maybe even be more of a favorite than he is against Derek oh. Lewis. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that about Derek Lewis. I, I absolutely uh, agree with you about that. In fact, it reminds me a lot of a column I wrote, which most people didn't really care about, but it was a column about how Jair Zinho Rosenstreich is very misunderstood and very underrated. How there is a very intelligent method to his unique approach to MMA and how it, it's very dangerous where Jair Zinho Rosenstreich, and you can kind of say this a little bit about Lewis too, they both look very mediocre and limited right up until the moment where they knock out their opponent. And that's because uh, Rosenstruck more so because Lewis has won decisions. Uh, they're they're looking to for that fight ending sequence. They're not looking to win on points for the most part. Um, I do think too that Ciro Gagne's fight against Jairzinho Rosenstruck is very relevant here because uh, Rosenstruck, I would say, has comparable power to Derek Lewis. He also has just this monstrous random power, which he carries all throughout the fight. Perfect example being how he knocked out Alistair Overeem in the last few seconds of the fifth round. And he had been like tired for many rounds at that point. Mm -hmm. In the same way that Derek Lewis, he can be tired, hurt, right? But he still has his monstrous power as well. And Cyril Gagne, he demonstrated just uh, a phenomenal uh, level of fighting where for five rounds, he fought very intelligently. He showed off his brilliant footwork and movement. He stayed at range. He used his jab well. He used his kicks. He would shoot takedowns to mess up with Jair Zinho Rosenstreich's timing. It was an absolutely brilliant performance, and I actually think that there were certain there were certain qualities that Rosenstreich had that uh, Derek Lewis does not have. I think that because he's a little bit smaller, Rosenstreich is a little bit faster than Derek Lewis. I think his kicks. Uh, they might not be as flashy, but they're more effective than Lewis's. His combinations flow a little bit better, whereas Lewis is more of a one-punch sniper. And also, um, Derek Lewis, and this is a very important point in this fight, he can be hurt to the body. He's been hurt a lot of times very badly to the body when he got knocked out by Junior Dos Santos, 
that was set up by him being hurt really badly to the body, for instance. And he was hurt really badly to the body against uh, Volkov, which is a fight he was being dominated thoroughly before Volkov just did some very, very stupid things at the end of a fight that got him knocked out. And one thing we know about Cyril Gagne is he has thunderous body kicks. He will target that area very effectively. Um, and and here's the thing, like a lot of people talk, oh, Derek Lewis, he has this tremendous power, right? That's all true, but Cyril Gagne, it's not just that his defense is very good. His chin is incredibly good as well. He has one of the best chins in the heavyweight division. Uh, I'm not saying Tanner Bozer is a big puncher, but he's finished guys by knockout. He had some absolutely perfect flush connects against uh, Gagne, who was still improving at that time, even though that wasn't that long ago. Um, and they just did nothing. Like, Gagne didn't react to it at all. Gagne also got hit several times pretty well by Rosenstruck, who has monstrous power. Didn't affect him at all. Volkov, also a pretty big hitter. Nothing, right? So his chin is, is phenomenal. And I worry that even if Lewis does land a big punch, it's not going to be enough to, to finish him. And we've seen that because Blagoy Ivanov is a guy with a tremendous chin, right? And he ate some huge shots from uh, Derek Lewis, and, and he survived. In fact, that was a close fight. Uh, one judge even had it for Ivanov, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I just see this as being a very bad fight for uh, for Derek Lewis. I see him getting pelted from distance. I see him getting hurt to the body. Uh, even if he does get that get that perfect punch, I, I don't even know that that's going to be enough. So I have Gagne uh, by by TKO KO at some point in the fight. Awesome. So all the way at the top of the card, we have uh, some pretty uh, strongly opposed views on on this high stakes main event. I'm going to put you on the spot since, you know, we both weighed in on what we think the value of an interim title is in 2021. But regardless of that, the winner of this is the presumptive uh, next opponent for Francis Ngannou. I won't hold you to this, but uh, gone versus Ngannou, what's your first impression? Who wins? I think Gagne it has the best chance out of anyone. In fact, I wrote a column saying that uh, Ngannou is tremendous, but he's not unbeatable. And number one on the list that I thought could beat him was Gagne. And interestingly enough, number two was Volkov, who Gagne had us already beaten soundly. So, yeah, Ngannou obviously has to be the favorite. Uh, but I think Gagne has has a very solid chance in that fight. Absolutely. And that would be frankly remarkable. We would be talking about Gan winning the UFC heavyweight title in his 11th professional fight. There have been a few fighters in the modern era who've gotten, you know, a title in a well-established division quicker than that. I'm not talking about, you know, Nico Montano winning the inaugural flyweight title, but uh, Chris Weidman was 10-0 when he beat 
Anderson Silva the first time. Brock Lesnar, I think he beat Randy Couture in like his fifth or sixth fight. But Cody Garbrandt, I think, was had just a few fights when he won the championship. Yeah, but we're talking rarefied company, and you know, uh, in the case of, uh, in the case of Lesnar and Weidman, we're talking about people who had a high level background in another discipline before getting into this, whereas Gone just walked into a gym at age 26, you know, <laughs> tried some kickboxing, and the coach was like, "Hey, you should do MMA instead." You know, it's not like he'd been training kickboxing for 10 years before he, he tried this. Uh, he's a remarkable story either way. And, I mean, clearly you agree since you're picking him in this fight, but the the most shocking thing to me is how poised and how intelligent he is in the cage. He just has the poise of a fighter with twice as many fights as him. And we see fighters all the time come in with, like, just blinding speed and incredible power, but you don't see many fighters that are more mature than their age and record would seem to indicate. That, that's almost the most impressive thing about Surreal Gone to me. Well, you also see indications of just how smart he is by his just incredible improvement from fight to fight. Like, it's just, it's, he's, he's almost like a different fighter sometimes just uh, in the span of a few months. Uh, I remember when he was about to make his uh, UFC debut, I wasn't really that impressed with what I had seen of his free fights before. I'm like, okay, he's athletic and whatnot but uh he very quickly changed my mind because he just kept showing such tremendous improvement every single time he came out and he just kept doing that consistently again and again and again and in a very short while he went from just this raw athletic guy to an extremely skilled high level smart fighter a bit like a heavyweight AJ McKee. Yeah, a little bit. Except he started much later on. Well, he started much later on, but it's heavyweight. You can't win 16 yeah. fights in a row at heavyweight without being the champ of something. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was he was thrust into the spotlight pretty quickly. Uh, unless you have anything else on this, uh, I certainly uh, appreciate you taking the time and, you know, obviously your insights and uh, all of your research and study in helping me break down these fights. Anything else you want to weigh in on or no hopefully it's uh and it's an exciting card there's some very interesting fights from the standpoint of analysis there's hopefully going to be some very uh exciting fights from the standpoint of action we can only hope uh this has been the sure dog radio network preview for ufc 265 lewis versus gone for lev basarski i am ben duffy thank you for listening Enjoy the rest of your week. Certainly enjoy the fights. And uh, Keith, my usual co-host, is on vacation. He's getting back on Saturday. So we'll actually be doing the recap on Sunday morning. Uh, you hopefully already subscribed to the SureDog YouTube page. But if not, uh, if not go subscribe now. And uh, we'll also announce it on the SureDog front page. Uh, we'll do a live recap. Take all your questions, uh, all your comments. Uh, if I am dead wrong about some of these picks, you can all pile on to me while Keith sits uh, safe and sound, not having put himself like, you know, out for the world like that. Thank you and good night. <laughs>